I should like to call your attention this evening to the message of that great third chapter of the book of Genesis, which I read just now, and especially to verses 7 and 8, the 7th and 8th verses in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, I have read this great chapter for the third Sunday evening here in succession. And we are considering it together for the third time. And I do so for the reasons that I have been giving. Here is a chapter which is absolutely vital and essential to a true understanding of the message of the entire Bible. We meet together here in a Christian church, obviously, to consider the message of the Bible. That is the business of the Christian church, to expound and to proclaim the message of this book. It's not a philosophical society. It's not a cultural society. It's not interested in anything primarily except in the propagation of this particular message. That is why uh, a meeting, a service such as this, of course, is quite unique. All services thus held in the name of Christ are unique in that sense, that we start by making the claim that we come from God, with a message from God. We don't start with ourselves. We are not in an effort and in an endeavor to arrive at God or at anything else. We come to consider a message from God. God speaking. Now, that is, I say, the whole purpose of a service such as this. And there is a great message in this book. A message for men as he is at this moment. Not something far away from life and divorced from life, but the most practical message in the world. This book has been speaking to generation after generation, speaking to them exactly where they were and as they were, and that is precisely what it does still. It's not some theoretical question or interest. There are such subjects, and they have their place, their importance, and their right. But this isn't that. Because this book tells us all along that we are but passing through this world once. But that while we are passing through this world, we are determining at the same time our eternal and everlasting future. And that therefore this is the most vital and the most urgent matter that we can ever consider together. So all along it presents its truth to us. In this way it reminds us that uh, we must do something about it. It's always impressing the urgency of the position upon us. If you're interested in the technical terms, it presents its truth always in an existential manner. I mean by that, as the term means, that, that I can't afford to sit back and uh, consider it casually and in a detached manner. No, no, the Bible says you can't afford to do that. 
because you're in an uncertain world and your whole life in it and your tenure of life in it is so uncertain. It's urgent. And therefore it always appeals to us to give it such an attention. It's here, I say, to deal with the problems that confront us every one. It's here to talk to us about ourselves. This very word we're considering tonight reminds us of that, you see. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? You remember that that is the account which is given here, a direct and a personal address. And that is what is happening in this service. God is speaking to us. He is speaking to us individually. He is speaking to us about ourselves, where we are, why we are there, how we've ever got there, how we can come from there. That's its whole message. In other words, its interest is in us, with our problems, our pains, our perplexities, our troubles, and all the things that tend to make life so difficult. That's its message. Now, I'm just saying that if we really are to understand that message, we've got to understand the message of this third chapter of this book of Genesis. Because this is foundational. This is the, the chapter in which we are told exactly why things are as they are. It's a book of history. This chapter is historical. Now you say that's an assertion. I agree. It is an assertion. I can't prove to you, prove it to you as you can prove a mathematical problem, but the greatest things in life cannot be proved in that sense. I could suggest many things to you which you take for granted, which, which you know to be true, but which you cannot prove in a mathematical sense. The whole case of this book is that this is historical. This is the explanation of why man is as he is. But in addition to that, as I was indicating last Sunday evening, it's not only historical. In a very remarkable manner, it also describes us one by one as we are now. That is the extraordinary thing about men in sin. We all of us, as it were, in addition to inheriting certain things, repeat what was done there at the beginning by men. Now, last Sunday evening, we were looking at that in a more or less intellectual manner. Because man has fallen and gone astray, in every respect, he started doing so with his mind. Men went wrong, first of all, in his mind. And we were looking at that last uh, Sunday evening. You remember how he accepted the dogmatic statement. And he began to look at it and to fondle it. And he liked it. And then he accepted what he was told about God's character and God's power in spite of all that God had done for him, and he deliberately rebelled against God. He accepted another point of view. He accepted another theory. He believed it was true, he acted upon it, and he began to reap the consequences. And we were at pains to show how men is still doing that. How he is ready to swallow the most dogmatic assertions which lack any vestige of proof whatsoever, because they have great names attached to them, and because they are made with a great spirit of dogmatism. This is something that not only a Christian like myself points out about modern thinking. Some of you, no doubt, heard recently a lecture on the wireless, on the theme of what was called humbug in science. It was the most interesting address and perfectly true. 
humbug in science. Showing how people, even scientists, can mislead themselves in various ways and do so. Well, that is something I say that is universally true. But it's particularly true in this realm. Man still defies God and rebels against him merely on some theory or some dogmatic statement. And then he repeats the whole sorry process. He displays his doubts of God, his hatred of God. He displays his ingratitude towards God. He uses his own reason and substitutes it for divine revelation. You remember how we are told, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, she started using her own understanding and her own reason, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now that's the self-same process, you see. It happened there at the beginning, it is still being repeated. But now I want to show you this evening that not only is this being done in the realm of intellect and understanding, it's being repeated in a much more experimental and even in a practical manner. And here we have a perfect description of it. What man in sin is constantly doing I confess again that I find it difficult at times, and were I not to know that this biblical teaching about sin is true and how the God of this world blinds our minds, I'd be at a loss to understand it altogether. I say, I find it difficult to understand how it's possible for anybody really to read this third chapter of Genesis and not at once to recognize this fact, that there we have nothing but a perfect description and delineation of what has been true of every one of us. It's astounding to me that anybody can read that book and say, well now, that must be true because that is really exactly what I've been and what I've done. It's an account of me. It's an account of men and women as, they, as I see them in the world today. But of course, instead of doing that, we try to avoid the facts and we try to explain them away in terms of psychology and in various other ways as I hope to indicate. And so the voice of God and its message falls upon deaf ears and men and women immersed in sorrows and problems and trials and tribulations refuse the one thing that can deliver them and give them salvation. That's the muddle that sin always leads to. That is what happens to men when he refuses to listen to God and goes his own way. He's brought himself into trouble. He even refuses the help which is offered to him to bring him out of it. And so he goes on and on, turning round and round in circles and never reaching the point at which he'd like to arrive at. Well, now then, let, let me remind you of these facts. Men, in the way we have seen, rebels against God. And then certain consequences follow. What are they? Well, here they're described as they happened at the beginning to Adam and Eve. And as I describe them, I think you'll see that there's still an accurate description of what is still happening. Listen. And uh, the moment they had eaten, the woman ate, and then she gave also unto her husband, and he did eat. And then at once... And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. What's it mean? Well, you see, the first thing that followed as a consequence from this act of rebellion and sin was this. They at once became conscious of a loss. Now, here's a very interesting phrase here. The eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. What does that mean? Well, nobody knows exactly what it means. But at any rate, it suggests this, doesn't it? That they were conscious at once that they were deprived of something that they had before. They knew that they were naked before they were not naked. What is this? I don't know, I say. I am ready personally to agree with those who suggest, as an exposition of this, that man at the beginning, as he was made perfect by God, had a kind of glory even about his body. There was a glory about his body even as there was about his soul. For man, when he fell, not only fell in his spirit, but he fell also in his body. You remember how the Apostle Paul says that at the end when our Lord shall come, he shall change this, our vile body, the body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, the body of his glorification. Man was made in the image of God, let us remember, in every respect. He was not only upright with a righteousness that was spiritual. I believe there was a glory pertaining to the body of men. And when he sinned, he lost it. And he was left with the body as we now know it. And he was aware that he had been deprived of something. There was a loss of something. There was a consciousness immediately of a nakedness, of a loss, of an incompleteness. Something had gone. A glory had departed. And that I suggest to you is the simple truth about men ever since. There is nothing more obvious about men as he's in this world tonight than that every one of us has got this sense of loss. Haven't we all got an idea that somehow or another we are missing something? We've all got an idea that there is something better, something higher. We all know something about the longing for what a poet has called an ampler ether and a diviner air. You can't explain it away. You've got it. Everybody's got it. Every man, it doesn't matter how far he's sunk in sin in an obvious external manner, every man's got this idea somehow that there is a better possibility, there is something somewhere. You see, that is why all these modern analyses of men which are not based upon this book are so shallow and so incomplete. What's the meaning of this restlessness that's in human nature? What's the meaning of this searching constantly for something which we haven't got and which we don't seem to find? What's it all based upon? Well, there's only one adequate answer. Man has got this innate feeling that he was meant for something bigger and something higher. What is it? Well, I'll tell you what it is. There is in every one of us a recollection, a memory of what we once were. 
We were all in Adam. Man was made perfect in the image of God. I say he was upright. He was righteous. There was this glory about his very body. And though we've lost it, and though we've never known it, a memory lingers. It's in the whole of human nature. It's in all mankind. A sense of something else. Of course, people have tried to interpret this in other ways, and they've gone wrong in doing so. Plato, you remember, tried to explain it. And Wordsworth borrowed his idea. Trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home, says Wordsworth. That's how we come. He believed, you see, that we start in this world with the glory still, but then shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, and somehow he's lost it. No, no, he'd lost it long before that. He'd lost it before he came. But the memory remains, and the platonic idea is simply an attempt to explain it somehow. This recollection, this sense that man has got within him, that he was meant for something bigger and higher, there's a sense of being deprived of something. I say it is universal. (coughs) We've all got this idea that we were meant for happiness, that we were meant for peace, that we were meant for a life of joy, (coughs) but that somehow this has been taken from us. And thus I say man is ever restless, ever ill at ease, finds it difficult to live with himself and finds it difficult to live with others. The whole of the human race is aware of this particular sense. (coughs) Now there, I say at the very beginning, we are given uh, this extraordinary description of that, if you like, in a pictorial form, but true nevertheless. And this has come down the centuries and persists even until this very night. Shall I put that in a personal form before I pass on to my second question? Aren't you aware of this sense of loss, this sense of incompleteness? Is there not some kind of surging within your being? Something within you that is crying out, I say, for something bigger, for something greater. Men cannot believe finally that he was just made to die. He has a sense of destiny, a sense of bigness, a sense of glory. He can't get rid of it, he can't get away from it. He would have us believe at times that it can be explained in terms of some great evolutionary urge, the elan vital that is in us all, that's urging us on to some kind of perfection. But that rarely doesn't explain it. Because what we're all conscious of is the sense of having lost something. A memory, a recollection. We are ever trying to recapture something that we know we once possessed. Now that's the first thing, but let me hurry on to the second because it follows of necessity from the first and very logically. The second thing we are told about them is that having become aware of this loss, They then tried to deal with it. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. 
You see, at once they were aware of this, and they felt, well, now, something must be done about this. We can't remain like this. How can we cover over this thing that we've lost? So they did what we are told here, and thus they made their effort and their attempt to cover themselves. The later part of the chapter tells us, you remember, how utterly inadequate it was and how God made provision for them. But the point at the moment is that they themselves immediately tried to deal with it. What a wonderful chapter this is. Don't you begin to see how essential it is to a true understanding of life? Had it ever occurred to you that in that one phrase you've got a complete epitome of the whole history of civilization? What's man been doing in his supposed civilization? He's simply been sewing together fig leaves to hide his own nakedness. That is precisely the meaning of what we call civilization. Consider some of the ways which man has tried in order to do this. He has always tried to do it along cultural lines. He says, yes, what we've lost, of course, is knowledge. There must be some understanding somewhere. Life is an enigma. Life's a problem. Things seem to be contradictory. Man himself is contradictory. Now, we're aware of all that at the very beginning. That's the loss. Well, then we say, well, now, we must get out of this. We must discover this. We must cover over this. So we begin to resort to our various cultural ideas. Knowledge, the thirst for knowledge, the thirst for understanding. The book of Job describes it, how man has always been seeking for it. It's more precious than rubies. That's the thing. Seek wisdom, seek knowledge. You get it in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's man under the sun. That's man apart from his relationship to God. And there he is trying to understand. He's seeking it in wisdom. He says, if only I could understand men, understand myself, the workings of my very being and of my mind, the cosmos in which I find myself, that's what is called philosophy. What's it trying to do? Well, it's trying to make up this loss. This failure to understand, we feel we ought to know that if we only strive, we shall know. We're trying to cover up the nakedness in respect of knowledge. And not only, of course, direct knowledge like that. Man in all his cultural activities is trying to do the same thing. Not only in pure thought and philosophy, in his study of history, he's rarely trying to do the same thing. He's trying to arrive at this understanding in his love of the arts, in his cultivation of music and all these things, he's somehow got the feeling that if he only goes in for these things, he'll make himself complete. That he'll become entire again. That's the thing, he's lost something. How can he get it back? Well, these are the things that are going to bring in the covering and add to my completion. I needn't keep you, you're familiar with it all. The world is tremendously busy tonight in that respect trying to cover up its nakedness, trying, if you like, to get back again the glory that's been lost. Other ways, of course, in which he's done it have been political. Those who view men as being essentially an economic unit or just a social unit, they've followed it out along that particular line. Man has always believed and still believes that somehow or another, by means of legislation, he can put things right. All these deficiencies that we're aware of, all these lacks. Well, he says, let's get together and let's organize this thing. That's politics, that's political action. 
That's the philosophy of politics. It's the attempt, I say, to put together the fig leaves once more to cover over a nakedness, to make life whole and complete and rounded, and so deal with this sense that we have of being deprived of something. We feel we're entitled to a fullness and to a kind of rotundity in life, and very well, we'll go in for it in this way. But you know, this is the extraordinary thing about men. Having lost this thing uh, through his disobedience and through his rebellion against God, he even tries to make it up by means of religion. All the religions of the world tonight, the so-called great religions of the world, are nothing but repetitions of this ancient action. Men somehow trying to answer the question and to fill the gap. Let me give you but one illustration from contemporary thought, which is most interesting. Take a man like Mr. Aldous Huxley, undoubtedly a brilliant man, a brilliant writer and thinker. Mr. Aldous Huxley, 20 years ago and before that, was quite convinced that men could solve his problems and could arrive at a state of completion by means of pure thought. He belonged to the school that taught that, and he was one of the leaders in the school. Man has nothing to do but to think and to educate himself and to work things out logically. If he only becomes scientific, he said in his various books and novels, if he only lives a scientific kind of life, well then all the problems are going to be banished and solved and all will be well. But he no longer says that. He came to see that that wasn't the answer. What is it now? Well, he says now that this is the answer. The only thing, he says, that can save the world is mysticism. And he's become a Buddhist. He's turned to religion, you see. To a religion. In other words, he's aware of the fact that man isn't just a pure intellect, that man has got a spirit, that man has feelings and emotions, that man is a bigger total than he'd thought of before, and he's crying out for the unseen. There is another realm, he says, another dimension. It's, he calls it mysticism. He means by that that there is a spiritual realm which is influencing us, and we can only be truly happy and make up our loss as long as we're in accord with that and as long as we submit to that. So he follows the mystic route, the mystic way. He's turned to religion. Well, now man, you see, has been doing this throughout the centuries. Having turned from the only true and living God, he's had to make gods for himself. He's made his religions. He tries everything but the God whom he's departed from. And so the whole time he repeats this procedure of stitching together the few fig leaves in order to try to hide his nakedness. But it's all inadequate. It's all even ridiculous. It's amateurish. Doesn't it seem foolish? Isn't it almost laughable? And yet, you see, that's the very thing that men still refuses to recognize. Men and women still scoff at Christianity, and there they are giving themselves to these other things that have been proved to be failures so often throughout the centuries. They're trying to cover the nakedness. They are trying, somehow or another, to make up the deficiency, the sense of something lost, something that we still need and cannot find Man tries to deal with it along his own efforts. 
And then that brings me to the next thing, which comes out so prominently in this record. Man has a sense of guilt and a sense of fear. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. You remember that formerly they'd accepted the statement of the devil, ye shall not surely die. There's no need to be afraid, they said. You just use your mind and assert yourself and stand up for yourself and express yourself, and there's absolutely nothing to fear at all. But they heard the voice and they ran and they hid themselves. Why? Well, sense of fear. Sense of guilt. Sense of shame. And again, it is just the message of this book to tell us that that's true of all of us. I know we don't like that statement, but you can't get away from it. It is the simple truth. We like to say on paper, and we do say in theory, don't we? Well, that uh, we are masters of our fate and captains of our souls, that we no longer are going to be governed by these phobias and fears, that we take a thoroughly rational scientific view of life, and that we do what we want to do and believe in doing, and we're not going to be frightened by anything. But alas, unfortunately, like Adam and Eve before us, it's one thing to say that, But it's a very different thing to experience that. And the whole tragedy of mankind tonight is this, that man is in this contradictory position. He says he's not afraid, and yet he's terrified. He says he doesn't believe in sin and in God, but he's got a sense of condemnation. He's got a vice within him that accuses him and condemns him. He is filled with a sense of shame. He's unhappy. He said to himself last night, there's nothing wrong in that. A temptation came. He said, it's all right. I'm no longer living in the mid-Victorian era. I'm not going to be frightened by the shibboleths of religion. I'm not going to be alarmed. I know I'm taking a scientific view. I've got these qualities and powers within me and they're meant to be exercised. And I can exercise them and all is well. And he did. But he woke up this morning feeling ashamed. He had a sense of condemnation within him. And it's gnawing at his conscience ever since. He may be in this service at this moment for that very reason. He's unhappy. He is miserable. There's always a reaction. The stolen fruit is not as pleasant as we thought. There's always something. There's a kind of spiritual indigestion that follows the eating of it. We can't get away with it somehow. If we could, of course, you wouldn't need any psychologists. But they're doing a thriving business. And they're doing a thriving business for the reason that I'm giving you. That though we are so bold and so wonderful, there's something within us that tells us that we are cads, that we are cowards, that we are fools, that we are ugly, that we are foul, that we are vile, that we are beasts and worse. And we can't get rid of it. We can't sleep because of it. We can't silence this vice that's within us. If only we could. But we cannot. And we're unhappy and we're wretched. And we have complexes. We'll call them that, but we won't call it sin. We won't admit it's fear. We won't admit it's shame. The complex, the strain, the pressure. Isn't that the simple truth? We'd like to explain it all away psychologically, but we cannot. We are up against the facts. 
and the facts within ourselves and with respect to ourselves. Though we want to get rid of God and all that belongs to him, we cannot. For the fact is that we've all, every man born into this world, has within him a sense of God and a sense of judgment. Say, if you like, that you don't believe in God, you've got a sense of God. And you have to argue with yourself. And all your intellectual arguments are really brought forward to boost your own assertion. While you are asserting that you don't believe and that you can prove scientifically and so on, there is something within one, within you that's pronouncing and objecting against it and is assuring you that there is a God and you're speaking with eloquence in order to drown the voice within you that speaks for God. It's in us all. There is a sense of God universal in mankind. Even in the most primitive tribes and races, they've all got it. A sense of God and a sense of judgment. Yes, and coupled with that, I'm being brutally frank, am I not? A fear of death. A fear of death. Ah, but you say the modern man isn't afraid of death, isn't he? Why does he take so much trouble to avoid speaking about it then? Why does he regard it as morbid to be reminded of it? The fact of the matter is that this present age is, has a horror of death. It's controlled, in a sense, by the fear of death, as the scripture puts it. All their lifetime are subject to bondage because of the fear of death. Well, let me give you the great statement of that very thing by Shakespeare. He's put it in his customary manner once and forever in the words you remember of Hamlet. The dilemma. Is it worth going on with life? With all its contradictions and its problems and its pains and its difficulties? Why go on to be or not to be? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to take up arms against outrageous fortune and so on, but come to the end. Here's the problem confronting us all. Why go on with it? Disappointments, sorrows, There was a brilliant young MP not many years ago who faced it all and he wrote the account of it before he committed suicide. He had a brilliant future before him. And he knew that he had very good prospects of perhaps becoming even the prime minister of this country. But he worked it out like this. He said, I know perfectly well that if I go on living and keep my eye on that, I shall make many enemies. I don't want to make enemies of them, but because I succeed, they will be jealous of me, and they'll dislike me, and they'll become my enemies, and there'll be disappointments, all sorts of things. He said, is it worth it? And he decided that it wasn't. But he was a very exceptional person. The average person, as Shakespeare reminds us, doesn't do that. He says... I could end it all with a bare bodkin. I could do it in a second. 
Well, why don't I then? Who would fardels bear to grant and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all. And the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. Isn't it absolutely true? However intellectual, however rational, however calm and cool and collected, we can't evade it, we can't avoid it. This sense of God, this sense of guilt, this sense of shame, this sense of judgment, this sense of death and what lies beyond it. Dust thou art to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. If it had been, very well I take up the bodkin and end it. But it isn't. It isn't spoken of the soul. The soul goes on. And it's that, as Shakespeare reminds us, which thus cripples the will, as it were. And we decide to go on with it, but the fear remains, and we can't get away. And the guilt and the shame, and all the agony, and all the remorse, and all the kicking of ourselves, metaphorically, on and on and on it goes. It started at the beginning, and it has been continuing ever since. But lastly, for me to close, the next thing is this. And it's here we see the unutterable folly of men in sin. In his trouble and in his misery and wretchedness, he runs away from and hides from God. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God from the midst of the trees, but God called to him again, Adam where art thou? And this is the saddest and the most tragic thing of all about men. He runs away from God. He runs away from the call of God. The voice of the God that comes to him in the garden in the cool of the day. In his shame and misery and wretchedness. Why? Well, because he doesn't know him, because he's believed a lie about him, because he's altogether wrong with respect to him. Because he doesn't realize that it is the very God against whom he's rebelled and into his face he spat. is the only one who can save him and is prepared to do so. That's the tragedy. There he is, I say, in shame and in failure and in utter hopelessness. And God comes and the voice addressed and he runs and hides. He runs away from God, his only benefactor, his only savior. That's the tragedy of the world this evening. Man in his misery. Man in his sin tries everything but what God says to him. 
You see, I've been making the same point from the very beginning, haven't I? We start, you see, with the voice from God, the word from God. Man was made in God's image and he spoke to God and God spoke to him. But then he listened to the other voice and he ceased to listen to God and all his troubles followed. But God speaks again and again man doesn't listen. He runs away in fear. And that is precisely, I say, what man is doing tonight. What am I doing in this pulpit? I'm nothing here, and what a privilege. I'm just a mouthpiece for God. My dear friend, you in sin this evening are being addressed by the voice of God. It's coming to you in the cool of the evening. Are you afraid? Are you resisting him? Are you running away from him in some shape or form? Do you feel that he's against you? Are you rebelling against his message? Are you trying to argue against it and to push it off? Are you afraid of the consequences of listening? If so, you're just repeating what Adam and Eve did. For you know, God came into the garden and spoke to them to tell them that in spite of everything they'd done, Though he'd got to punish them for doing it, he was also providing a way of salvation and of deliverance. That was exactly why he came. Not merely to denounce them and to pass judgment upon them, but the promise of the seed of the woman and the conquest over the enemy that had got them down. And that is the message of the gospel. And that is my simple message this evening. There is nothing under heaven tonight and there is no one save Jesus Christ and him crucified who can meet your need. You are aware of the restlessness, the thirst, the hunger, the searching for something you cannot find. What are you searching for? What you really need? Oh, let Augustine answer again in the great word, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. My dear friend, you are made on that scale. There is nobody that can satisfy you. There is nothing less than the mighty, almighty, eternal God himself. And, you see, he does so in Jesus Christ. He brings you back to himself. He'll deal with all these subsidiary problems which I've been mentioning. Give up trying to solve it. Give up trying to deliver yourself. Give up trying to get rid of your sense of guilt, for you never will. Your conscience will follow you. As long as you're alive, it'll go with you beyond the grave, and it'll torment you in hell to all eternity. You'll never silence it. You'll never get rid of a sense of failure. You'll never get rid of a sense of guilt and of shame until you come to Jesus Christ and believe what he tells you, that he's taken your guilt upon himself, that he's died for your sins, that God has punished them there and offers you free pardon. That's the meaning of this communion. Jesus Christ was crucified on Calvary's hill for that reason and for that alone. He bore your judgment. The wrath of God fell upon him. And because of that, 
If you believe in him, the wrath of God no longer abides on you. God assures you that he has pardoned you freely, washed away your sins. He'll take away the sense of guilt and of shame. You'll know that you're forgiven. He'll know that you're a child of God. He'll give you new strength and power. He'll give you a new understanding. He'll give you a new insight. You'll see things differently. You'll reason differently. You'll have a new view of life altogether. A new view of death. A new view of judgment. A new view of eternity. A new view of God himself. So that instead of running away from him and whimpering and hiding yourself and feeling that he's against you, Oh, you long, believe me, beyond anything else in this life and in this world, you long to hear the voice of God. You will begin to say, Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus. Oh, how passing sweet thy words. Breathing o'er my troubled spirit, peace which never earth affords. All the world's distracting vices, all its enticing tones of ill, at thine accents mild, melodious, are subdued, and all is still. My beloved friend, have you heard the voice of God speaking to you here tonight? He has been speaking, the voice of God. Showing you your failure, your misery, your unhappiness, your wretchedness, the cause of it. How nothing else can ever deliver you out of it, but that he has provided a way to deliver you. In his only begotten son, who gave his life for you, because he loved you. Come out of your hiding place. Come to him. Rush to him. Cast yourself at his feet. Say, I believe. Just as I am. I don't understand. Many a conflict, many a doubt, but nothing else can. So just as I am, I come. And if you do, he will smile upon you and let you know that he has received you. And he will bless you throughout the remainder of this your earthly life in death and receive you unto himself in glory. Amen.